Hi, how's it going? Welcome to another episode of Humans Aren't Robots, a series of conversations with designers and creative thinkers uncovering the human elements of teams and modern business practices. I'm your host, Sam Davies, and today we are looping back to a conversation I had at PauseVest earlier in the year with Miles Orkin. Miles is a UX lead at Google. He actually spends most of his time leading UX teams. So I think uh, when I spoke to him, he was in uh, Reach and was overseeing something like a team of 500 UXs, which is big numbers of people. What he spends most of his day doing is thinking about ways that he can essentially lead, motivate humans at Google so that they can do a better job of what they do to come into work. And a lot of that, um, which we spoke about in this conversation, is providing uh, a space of psychological safety. It was interesting. So Google actually did a study around uh, this, which they call the uh, Ar- Project Aristotle, I believe. Um, and there's five five components to it. And it was uh, make it safe to speak the truth, make the tough calls, constantly seek clarity, and make it line up. So ensuring the team sees the connections between purpose. And then number five is that sort of do it, review it, and adapt. But number one, making it safe to speak the truth is something we spoke about a lot in this conversation. Miles was awesome. We... Um, his his keynote speech was incredible. If you if you Google Miles Orkin UX rap, uh, you can see that. And I think his his chat from Pause is is up on the up on the web as well. Um, he has a background in journalism and skateboarding and punk rock and hip hop. So we actually shared a lot in common, and it was fascinating conversation. I love speaking to people that uh, are team leads at Google because they really get I think the safety to to play and be creative in how they go about leading teams which is what we're all about here on the humans aren't robots podcast so some brilliant takeaways for anybody in a leadership position or wanting to get more out of their leaders in the businesses where you work some really uh, groundbreaking stuff here from miles so let's jump in and have a chat with miles orkin from google at pause fest cheers Miles, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Excited so, to be here. We were just talking about Australia. It's your first time in, in Australia. Yeah. And thanks for meeting me here at this disco. It's yeah. it's pretty cool. You can hear the bass pumping in the background. That's right. It's all the it's all the vibe of Pause Fest, just the ambience in the That's background. It. It's a nonstop party. How have you enjoyed the, uh, the the event so far? It's been great. I've, I've, everything I've seen has been kind of inspiring and exciting. And I probably should have gone to more things, but I also had to go out and walk around Melbourne. And yeah. yeah look at the trade off, right? Yeah. Yeah, but it's been it's been great, really, and it's been a really um, just a well-run conference, and clearly focused on the holistic experience people have, not just pounding away with case studies of marketing campaigns or something. You know? I imagine you, you get around to a few conferences around the world. So, I, honestly, not that many. I like speaking, but I have trouble going and sticking with the whole conference because it it ends up to me feel I. It feels like professional Instagram. Like you go there and you see these different things and everyone's telling you these stories and you're like, I'll never launch a design system like that. That's that perfect. I'll never. And so you can just, I end up having this like massive, like halfway through a three day conference, you, you know, it's like an, an identity crisis and an existential, you know, cr- you know, freak out. And uh, so I like to dip in and dip out and go to the dinner or hang out and talk to people and just, you can only consume so many examples it's like you shouldn't listen you shouldn't think about the emails you're going to send when you're in bed you're just doing work that you have to do again and sometimes yeah. it feels like too much work like sure i'm consuming other people's work like i don't even Un- i can't even keep up with my work <laughs> unnecessary suffering <laughs> yeah. yeah but it's a great conference and 
really warm vibe from the organizi- organizers. So. We've spoken um, a lot the last couple of days about, I suppose, the last 20 years and you know how the internet's kind of shaped our lives, having sort of been at, you know, without it for you know, in our youth and then sort of coming into it. But the thing that excited me, and it's probably a good segue initially, was that discovery element, right? It was that, it was that phase of discovery. So early 90s, uh, for me, it was, it was music and skateboarding. So we probably have a, we have a bit of a, a shared history there. But to, to be able to access content from other parts of the world that I would have had absolutely no way of getting before that. You know, maybe a dubbed VHS or a, you know, a, a fanzine that's, you know, at the local skate shop. But otherwise, there's no way to, to access that. Yeah. Yeah, it's and it's it was a big shift when the internet made those connections so much easier to to happen. I, I mean, I, I worked at my first real job was Thrasher Skateboarding Magazine, and that was in the late '80s, um, dawn of the street style era. Mark Gonzalez, not as Coppas, Tommy Guerrero. Amazing time to be oh, in San Francisco. Yeah, it was great. It was so <laughs> much fun, um, and some of those guys are still pals, you know. Um, but but like. You know, years later, I'll meet somebody and, you know, I, I was a friend of a friend, creative director at a digital agency. You worked at Thrasher in the 80s? I was, you know, I was like a reject, a teenager in, in a rural, rural Oklahoma and people thought I was either like a deviant Satan, Satanist or just a loser and everyone wanted to beat me up and they hated me and once a month that Thrasher would come and I'd be like, no, I have a reason to live. I'm like, I'm going to make it. There are other people like me and it was such a lifeline and was it like knowing that you played that role for people, um, even hearing about it later, but even at the time, like we had that sense of, you know, speaking to to marginalize people in their voice in the in the context that they wanted um, it gave a lot of satisfaction and that actually something that carried through my whole career um, and I still focus on it I've worked in a lot of different situations I worked in nonprofit for a long time I worked for a startup that was really focused on uh, baby boomers and old people but it was like hey we're giving it to them one of the reasons I I took a job at Google initially was because my first role at Google was in search and search is all about essentially democratizing information and you know you need the information that you need and the more precise we can be in giving you the answer that you're looking for based on the question that you asked no matter how you ask the question the more power you feel in your own life and so it's really fun to to work on these kinds of you know information at scale um, is is a it's a big challenge, but really satisfying. Kind of for the same reason that that magazine hitting that kid's mailbox was satisfying. But it, and it was it kind of like between sort of Thrasher and a few surfing magazines as like a you know a twelve year old in Australia. It it would kind of well it helped define my worldview as well. But it was everything: it music, fashion, clothes. Like it, it really was it really was that kind of gateway to another part of the you know the universe. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, I wrote the recipe column. But oh, really? When I was the, yeah amazing. for three years. I wrote the Chef Boy Am I Hungry? That was <laughs> you know it was so it was like recipes too. It was everything, and um, but it was. It was not corporate. It was done with a voice of authenticity and the people, you know, working at the office, um, people people kept each other honest. You know, like you weren't, it wasn't about selling something for a major brand. It was about piping this, like, let's, tr- let's send the electrical cord to charge everyone up who's into this stuff, you know? And um, at the time, when I was working there, this guy, Jake Phelps, 
Well, yeah, rest in peace. Exactly. He was the mailroom guy. And we used to we used to drive over. He lived in this crazy warehouse in the East Bay, and I lived in the East Bay. And one other guy. And we would all commute over. And, and like, I've known Jake for years. and But he was, even back then, he was an obnoxious, loudmouth. But he would call bullshit on anyone who was fake. Yeah. And he ended up being the king of skateboarding. And, um, yeah, it was funny. Like, not long before he died, he and I were talking a whole lot and he was I was going to have him come in and do a big talk at Google and all about like taking risks and being create being taking creative risks and he had never like for years he was a guy who was like if you're not a skateboarder you don't even exist like I'm just going to shove you out of the way and then like he had this change where he realized oh man I actually kind of like I, I kind of figured something out that's relevant to a lot of people and it, it was all just about like if you want to be you know, make your mark as a creative person and whatever your creative pursuit is, you have to take some risks and you have to kind of not give a fuck. <laughs> so um, that was really exciting. And then he died. So that's too bad. <laughs> it is one of, one of my questions. Actually, I spoke to someone else yesterday who came from uh, uh, Ireland, but had, had a DIY punk background now in uh, marketing. But there's something about, I think that, yeah, that, that the, the culture around saying like a punk or skateboarding where there is this strong sense of autonomy, strong passion, creative freedom, not giving a fuck and just going out and making shit happen no matter what that breeds very well into the modern business world. It, I think it does. I think, you know, like at Google now in my role, I work with really large UX teams on creativity and culture and inclusion and organizational enablement. Um, but I, one thing I do is a lot of different workshops on sort of peripheral skills or soft skills, you know, even though soft skills are the hardest skills <laughs> to learn. Um, so I do, but I do one on stage presence because I was in a band for a long time too. So, and, and authenticity and things like that. So, you know, now it's like, you know, that two years when I dropped out of college and was working at the skateboard magazine and playing in a rock rap band. Um, I went back to school, but like that, that was actually the best career move I could have made. Yeah. Like, I'm like, <laughs> suck it, dad. I've got a picture of my band in my presentation tomorrow. You know, like it's, so I do like a UX rap at, at Google and you know, they there, people will tap me to do like their satirical song lyric for their all hands. <laughs> nice. I, yeah. So you never know. I want, I want to hear the UX rap. Is it, is it online somewhere? Uh, it'll be if tomorrow at 1030 here. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's part of my presentation. Beautiful. Well, so, we'll be there to say that. Yeah, so. we'll record it. <laughs> yeah, I could. I'll break it down for you, man. It's 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 no joke. I've got a number. I have a a generic UX rap, a design ops rap, nice a UX culture rap. <laughs> so I'm working on a an, a full length album. We'll we'll have it coming out soon on Epitaph. <laughs> so Epitaph, yeah, nice. Um, they did cross over into a into a bit of a bit of hip hop as well, didn't they? They did put out some stuff by like... It's like Atmosphere. Like, yeah, like Trap. Did they do some like Tim Armstrong stuff and some of those guys? Yeah. Like, oh, they did some crossover help. stuff? Yeah. yeah. But they, they signed Atmosphere. I don't know if you know that from uh, from Minneapolis. Really, really good rapper. Um, I think probably 10 years ago. But um, So how did you... So what was the pivot then from writing the, the recipe column at Thrasher? Then what, what did you go back to school and study? Creative writing. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, at some point I was like, okay, if I don't go back to college... I'll probably end up writing about skateboarding my whole life. And I like skateboarding, but I think I want to do more stuff than just that. Like, so I went back and 
because I went back to school, I had to get part-time work, so I started contracting at, this was when they published magazines in San Francisco. Um, they don't really, it's all, there, there are barely any, mag, any magazines. So I, I, and at, at Thrasher, I actually learned graphic design from a guy named Enrico Chindoja, who, who was like an awesome graphic designer. He was one of the founders of this really, this cult underground magazine called Research, Re colon Search, which was like a early, uh, just like an art design subculture magazine. So anyway, I learned a ton of the graphic design. I learned typesetting because it was before the, it was before the internet, before desktop publishing, before, you know, like mo- mobile, like all, all of the things that it was ancient. There were like, I rode a horse and bucky to work, but um, then I started working at magazines and I would do different, I would work in the production department or the art department or the copy department. And then, then the internet happened. So I worked at startups and then I, then I got really San Francisco in the late nineties was kind of gross because of the big dot-com boom. And I was working at a startup and had these options. So we were thought we were so smart. My wife and I were like, we're, so sick of it here. I'm from the Bay Area, but it was like so like everyone wanted to get that Audi TT and drive. I'm like, man, sure. come on. You've got like blue hair and troll dolls on your desk and, <laughs> and piercings. And you're like, I can't wait to get my stock options. I'm going to get that Audi TT. I'm like, you are fake, man. Yeah, yeah. So, but Phelps wouldn't have put up with that. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. Um, so we put all our stuff in storage and bought one-way tickets to Paris. Okay. And then I was like, Mike, they're, they're going IPO any day. It's going to be great. And then the bubble burst and I had to get a job. So. <laughs> you become a writer on the left bank. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I, I became a UX um, uh, account lead for a Swedish web consultancy in their Barcelona office. <laughs> and I did that for two years, which was cool. It was great. Uh, 2000 to 2002, and there's this group called Icon Media Lab, which was one of the like first wave of big digital agencies like Lost Boys or like Razorfish or you know. So, um, so I did that, and then eventually went back to this. We went back to the states, and there was no work. And then I ended up getting a job at American Cancer Society as like digital and regular communications. And I actually worked. I worked there for like 10 years, and I had lost a, my brother to cancer earlier on, and had other family members. So that meant a lot to me personally, but I also, in that experience, I did a lot of traditional communication and creative services work, but also led a lot of digital initiatives and ended up being their national director for web and mobile. So it was a great education in how do you mobilize people around a mission and a, and a cause. And so that it had this weird connection to skateboarding, which was like, People don't really want to know, especially in the day back in those days. Like they don't want to know about skateboarding. They want to think about it. It's like bad, dirty, gross people, and people kind of don't want to know about cancer either. And they don't want. I know I should do this, but like, so like healthy behavior change. How do you motivate people to, you know, you can talk about like, oh, the you know the aerosols or the ingredients in this, but like really, if you just ate less shitty food and took a walk every day, you greatly reduce your risk of cancer. And so, um, but how do you engage in that conversation with people or how do you do fundraising events that are both meaningful for the mission and feel like engageable for people who have already dealt with a lot. So it's sort of like recognize that there's this trauma people are dealing with when they're dealing with chronic disease, give them hope and give them a way to feel like they're doing something about it. And that was really, um, really valuable for me in terms of just understanding what I like the most to do, which is sort of, I'm more interested in doing programs or um, initiatives 
that are focused on people rather than on products. And so when I came to Google, I was doing a lot of operational leadership, but also like the, you know a Google UX or some of them, the one I'm on now is 630 people. Uh, actually, since I scheduled this talk, I have moved. Um, so now I'm in uh, Reach UX, which is ads and ads and commerce, basically ads and shopping, and is the biggest UX team at Google. It's probably the biggest single VP UX org. Anyway, I mean, 630 people. It's like a giant company. So in-house for an in-house team is pretty big. So. Um, but I've worked in all the bit. I've worked in G Suite. I've I'm working in ads. I used to work in search and maps. Um, and it's, you know, a lot of what I learned in the nonprofit world was directly applicable at Google, where like everyone's kind of a volunteer because they, it's really decentralized. It's very con the decision making is very consensus based. It's not a typical hierarchical company. And so, if you want to get anything done, you have to have a lot of relationships and understand motivations and get people to rally around the cause. And so I was able to get traction really quickly because I'm like, yeah, this is just like a large national nonprofit, only it's got a better tech stack so, <laughs> and free food because that didn't happen. I think we're sure, <laughs> Colin, back a bit. How did you, so, you know, coming from a, you know, a written communications background, what was that pivot to UX? And I'm, I'm interested to know sort of the you know, was it was the role of user experience designer at that time? Was it, do you say, late 2000s or early 2000s? Was that early 2000s? Early 2000s. Um, I think it, I don't think it was called UX at the time. I think, it, like, when I'm trying to think, like, when I was at Icon Media Lab, um, I think my title was Director of Interface Projects. So I think it was called, but, but that, like, that company was a really good, they were really strong on, um, they had a, a really good framework of methodologies for user-centered design. So that's that was the dawn of the era of user-centered design. So I just learned a lot there. And I think my perspective on UX is very holistic. I don't, I'm not really, I'm a much more of like a generalist than a specialist. I have a lot of sort of visual design background from various roles, but I didn't go to design school. What I'm good at is uh, being able to articulate a design point of view because I have good, I have um, good word skills. <laughs> so, um, and, but I understand um, sort of, I also did, I've done various work around design thinking. So like I understand lots of different, and I've been done a lot of production management too. So early on, so like I understand process, I understand the vocabulary, and then I understand the, the unique methods for sort of design thinking, which, you know, nowadays, because it get things, the natural tendency is to commoditize and to scale. And the, I see this in my world a lot at Google. You know, it's all about scaling. And so, some some things lend themselves to scaling, and some things can get a little bit diluted. And so, now you'll see design thinking programs where you know, or or people speaking about it at conferences like this. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, that's like those are good like tools or good sort of workflows or templates but like where's the thinking yeah like, where's the thinking we get, part we get too hung up on the frameworks and and stop agile is another big one right so i think that uh, the core of agile is be agile and not you know stress about scrum or whatever the framework might be i think it's the same with a lot of design thinking practices yeah, yeah exactly and you see you know you see it play out and you know, it's like you're trying to roll some new way of doing things out to five thousand people you, you need to put it into a playbook but if you're not careful 
the the playbook becomes the thing rather than solving the problem. So like, so I, one thing I'll say is like, you can, like, if you map out the steps, you can teach anyone a dance. You can teach them the samba or yeah. the salsa, but that doesn't mean they're a good dancer. A very <laughs> like, good, very good analogy. Like, yeah, it's right. So it's like, let's not, <laughs> let's, you know, find your groove and actually d- dance that way. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So. So, so pivoting then, I suppose, to you know, your role now is, is largely leading people and leading teams. And, and we talk a lot about people in this podcast and about you know, people make up the world. Where everything's, every, everything comes back to people. And we live in this tech environment. You work for you know, the largest tech companies in the world. But it all comes back to having those passionate people that can find their groove. I'm really interested in this whole notion of you know, being able to find your groove at work, right? So being able to come in every day and you know, dance whatever dance you, you dance. And how, how do you start empowering that as a, as a leader? Yeah, that's a, good, that's a super good question. And um, I feel there are a few things that I think about when I, when I think about that. One is I really do draw on my background in sort of like punk rock and skateboarding. Because you, when you... So one way to, to look at that sort of... Um, what, what you're talking about is to call it culture, right? So culture is one of these umbrella terms. And, but when you look at companies and especially at design teams and companies, what you really want to think about is subculture because you, you know, you do have a corporate culture and Google actually has a pretty nice corporate culture. They, they do a lot of, they, they really go to bat for their employees in a lot of ways. The benefits are great. The tech, the tech support is the, is the best thing ever. Like it's so good. Um, but it's, you know, a company, a, whether you have a company of 100,000 people like Google or a company or team of 100 people, it's not just a monoculture. It's really a, a mix of micro and macro communities. And there's like the people who love anime and then these other people who love baking cookies. And like, how do you enable all the subcultures in a way that feels open and fluid? Because and, and that doesn't, I think that in our world now, anything that's even a little bit um, sort of uh, pinging on, pinging the needle on sort of uh, like like buzz or social dynamic can get commoditized so quickly. And even things that are not authentic feel, it's like this whole influencer culture and the way like, you know, influencer culture, culture and Instagram filters and like wow that's so crafted and and so bespoke and like no actually it's super formulaic and like not like so how but it's so how do you do that there are a few things one is trying to you have to work top down and bottom up the the story that you shape from the top down has to be something that is is applicable to a lot of different kinds of people so and really you want to be creating a higher order like if you're leading so in a, a design org of 500 people they're actually working on lots of different things. So what's the common thread that you can tell them that makes them feel like, wow, I'm part of something special that's more, that's bigger than just me and getting people to think um, about what's, what is meaningful beyond their daily scope of work and how that connects to the things inside of them that they really believe in is really, um, can be incredibly powerful. So that's that's a part of it, is creating a, an organizational narrative that feels authentic, and not not overly sort of like not overthought it should be straightforward and sort of like hey we care we all matter we are doing this stuff with these products because we want to help these kinds of people do this other kind of stuff right um and then you have to look like there's a you know there's the notion of bring your whole self to work 
and what the way I like to look at it is like that's I that's great. It is great to think about people being able to bring their whole self to work. But what I really work on encouraging teams to do is is to think of the responsibility on the other. So it's yes, we should all be able to bring ourselves to work, but that's not really a, a burden that I should be placing on people. Like, hey, dude, bring your whole self. What the burden should be? Hey, look around and see the holistic people around you and if you if you are looking at the people around you as essentially stereotypes then try harder to know what they're really like even if what they're really like is really different than the people you went to college with or the people you hang around with now and if you can do that that's what that's where you know and you look at all the research like google itself has done a ton of research on what makes teams really thrive like what are the characteristics of successful teams a big part of that is psychological safety. Is the team, do you feel safe in your team? Do you feel connected? The way you make people feel safe and connected is not to have like a psychological safety training. Um, and even like the, you know, like unbiasing of things, they, sh- you know, like Harvard Business Review has a lot of literature on this. Like bias busting is great. It's a good thing to do, but it doesn't like, it's not the only thing you should do. And what you really want people to do is go, oh, I know this person. Like I just kind of know, like, you can work for someone with someone for a really long time and have no idea where they were born or what they were like as a kid. And once you know that about someone, it changes everything. Like then you're like, oh my gosh, you did. And the, the people's lives are so interesting. But if all you ever know about their life is what they did last weekend or which, which like Netflix series they're watching, it's it's so like you don't. And if you have that connection, then when everything goes crazy or people are mad you can get through it because you're like, no, this is like a real, I care about this person. So So I can say as a, that sort of top down, bottom up, as a leader, you can, you can show vulnerability and and you, and you can have those conversations. You can ask some of those deeper questions. I'm interested, like even in a small team, I see it. How do you then, so you can promote that from, you know, leading from the back, but then how do you then go about, because yeah, you're not going to walk into the office and say, hey mate, uh, you need to talk to Nick more today because, you know, you don't know enough about his background. You, you, you know, you're not going to take that approach. So you almost need to start fostering a, you know, the culture of it somehow, but it's uh, it's harder to do than, you know. Yeah, you have to be a little bit sneaky, I think. Like you have to be sneaky and creative. So I'll do a lot of activities with teams. Um, and like, so for instance, I was the one person driving culture and creativity across I think it, at some point I was I, I had a role where I was doing it in cloud, Google Cloud which includes G Suite but also Google Cloud Platform and other things if you looked at the total number of UXers it was like seven or 800 people when I'm one person so like I, I'm not going to scale myself what I started doing was meeting with directors and saying well what are the issues that you're, you're like what, what do people need help with and they'd say, well, storytelling. We really need help with storytelling. What can you do? So I'd build modules that were like an hour long that were kind of, that were helpful, like they were, but they weren't like a training because my, my philosophy on training in, in companies, especially if you're like the in-house person, like training is what you do with dogs and babies to tell them where to pee. Like, but these were like a workshoppy, but kind of just like, like edutainment, like fun, engaging. And part of it was teaching a skill, but actually part of it was getting the team to connect with each other. And so, and then instead of doing it like, we have a training program, sign up, or you you go to the team offsite, the team of 50 people, the team of 30 people, and say, give me an hour and a half on your agenda. I'm gonna run this thing. They're gonna learn a skill, but what they're also doing is having a shared experience that's more meaningful than like painting on pottery or doing an escape room. 
So it's team building and skill building and connection building all at once. And, and it's, but it's like putting spinach in a milkshake with your kids. Like they don't even know it's there. <laughs> that's, the, that's the key. As soon as you tell someone, this is your sensitivity training, they just like, they get really insensitive, you know? But you need them to be sensitive. Like, so for instance, I do, well, I'm actually, in my talk, I'm demonstrating it. So, so but I, in that talk, so one thing I do is I have people let's say you're running a design sprint and it's a day long thing I'll come in and do something silly I have, I'll do a UX wrap and then do a little activity where I say talk to each other about where you were born what you were like as a kid and one experience that really shaped who you are whether it was a, an event or a person like a teacher or anything and, and now just break into small groups and talk and you, you watch that start happening and like it's quiet it's kind of quiet for a few minutes and then it just goes like it lights up i've never seen this not happen any size it lights up and you it's like when it's time to stop it's like stop stop like and then people often will say like i just like i i like the thing i was saying like i work with i've worked with this person for three years i had no idea that her, her whole family were immigrants from the Ukraine and they had to travel through seven countries and eventually landed in New Jersey where everyone teased her about her sweater, you know? And it's like, oh man. And so, that, but that's like a half an hour activity where all I said was, we're just gonna like talk about who we are a little bit, you know? So things like that, or just, I think doing a, 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 a workshop where you learn something new and practice it, making it really experiential, they walk away, if they do it as a group, like a team, they walk away feeling like they had a shared experience and they get a shared vocabulary. So they can practice it and talk to each other about it. So the things that have a sense of um, immersion and hands-on, but light, not heavy, people get often too, if it, I'm not a very, I guess I'm not a very academic person. So it should feel, f like it should feel fun, and it, but practicable so later you can work on it rather than I took the, you know, a lot of times you'll see a training, it's like a half a day or a full day. Like, who wants to do anything for a full day? Mm. You know, other than surf, yeah, you know? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned in there, I heard you talk about this before, there's an element of putting people out of their comfort zone a little bit there so that then mm -hmm. fear comes into it. How, how do you see fear sort of playing a role in, in development as a human? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think and one thing I'll talk to people about is, is you, you have to get people comfortable with just the idea of fear. Like fear is not, fear is natural and it's healthy, but it doesn't have to inhibit your decision-making and you have to be able to separate out the notion that, Hey, this is a real, you know, it's really scary to show my work to the VP. Um, but I should do that. And it's scary when the VP gives me a bunch of feedback that basically blows up my, my design mocks. Um, so, Part of overcoming fear is making sure teams understand how to have conversations when things go wrong. So like I teach, I talk to teams about like learning from failure. Um, also, again, making sure that you're, you're helping t managers know um, that it is hard to do design work. It is emotional. It's your baby. You're, you put your babies in front of people and they like crap on your babies, you know? And then you have to decide, yeah, actually they were right. That baby, my baby's hand has to get cut off and we really only need one hand on the baby. <laughs> I really <laughs> wanted to. That's a terrible, gruesome. It is. It's a, but you know, it's a podcast. So we have to be visually stimulating <laughs> to people too. Like, um, but 
I think that learning how to give constructive feedback, learning to, how to be there for people emotionally at the right at the right level of intensity when they need it, so that because that's what builds the muscle. You know, like I, in my talk, I say the thing that my brother, who was a really really hardcore skateboarder, like not like like pools and like Tony Alva, like those kind of people, um, and then. And so one time someone, someone said to him, Hey man, Rube, you gotta, you gotta teach me how to skate. You're so good. And he's like, Hey, I can't teach you how to skate. And only the pavement could teach you how to skate. Like you just have to take your lumps. Like, and it, I did a lot of judo uh, and stuff like comp and wrestling and stuff. And in judo, you, you only get good at throwing once you get really good at falling because until you get good at falling, you're scared of getting thrown. So you don't know how to attack and make your own throw. So it's building, building, tolerance through repetition in a healthy way versus dropping people into the fire and sink or swim which is often the way you know teams will do it it's like get in there and if you if you survive you've you know you're tough and it's true you have scar tissue and you're tough but it's it doesn't work for everybody and especially for people who are you know design people are often sensitive introverts and they deserve to be sort of respected for that that that's what makes them creative. They're rece- they have receptors. They they're receiving all the time. They're seeing, and you can't see and drink it all in and not be affected by it. So I've got a young designer working for me, and uh, we're having some talking to him about how he's accepting feedbacks from clients because he takes it really personally. And yeah. I was saying, you know, something you're going to have to sort of grow. And he's like, he said to me, I probably didn't deliver it well enough. He's like, okay, I'll just turn off my feelings then, mate. <laughs> right. I'm like, right. No, no, no. Yeah, exactly. But it, but it's it, like, how do you learn to process the feelings mm. and have the space to process them, but yeah. in a way where you're, where you're also listening? Because sometimes the things that make you feel worst, and even from like the most, like the most biggest jerk creative director, could give you feedback in the meanest way possible. But once you get past the negativity of their delivery, it's often sort of like, oh, but you know they're they really had some good points and that's how you grow if you're not able and you have to i would like i feel like you it's not even just listening like sometimes when you're when you're working on creative material you have to listen and you have to look you have to look at how it's landing with people you have to like smell like almost like see like what's going on like reading the room there's this thing there's this term that i heard on a podcast and i use it when i talk about stagecraft like in presenting is the what do they call it? The thinking breath. So this is like an actor's term, a, a theater term, where if when when you're in the theater and you want to really connect with your audience, you're all the notion is you're all breathing the same air. So just the way you breathe and the way you, you when you're breathing, you're doing it in a really conscious and intentional way. That's thinking because you're actually breathing in the vibe that's happening in the whole room, the whole theater, and that. So, so you have to train yourself to absorb feedback beyond just the verbal verbal cues and when you can do that you 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 end up making better uh, iterations i think that's really pertinent in design in that a lot of people that are giving feedback don't have the vocabulary to actually talk about yes because uh, often it's an emotional connection with design so that there's something that isn't resonating with me emotionally but i might verbalize it and saying that i don't like that typeface or that's the wrong color or this is too big but there's yeah. like something deeper there rather than just what meets the eye yeah and you have to you have to build the tools to unpack that and mm. say okay i hear you saying you know you don't you don't like that color like is that because you don't think color belongs in this area on the page or because you just don't like blue or you know but it's it's really interesting and what i see in the in large design organizations is 
the further up the food chain the person is who's giving the feedback, even if they're magnanimous and um, and and very open to dialogue, um, it's it, you pass a certain point and it's pretty much like like Moses stone tablet Ten Commandments, like. Well, you know, so-and-so said they, they didn't like blue, so, like, no more blue. When really the person might have said, well, why'd you make that button blue? And it's like, no more blue, no more blue. Sue said no more blue. And it, it, this literalism that cascades out of design review meetings, and you really have to, to train people to, to push back against that constructively. And, and lead design leaders, I feel it's really their obligation to, if there's a, you know, a VP or a senior stakeholder who um, is providing like cryptic often it's like cryptic feedback you know it's sort of like wow we went to the we went up the mountain and the there was some smoky stuff and the oracle the guy came out of the cave and said i don't like the blue on the button like what do we what does he mean by that it's like no you know what go back up the mountain and ask and if you can't then i'm the director i'll go and ask and that's what they should feel that obligation to bring more you, you know most good design like d design gets better and better when you ask more questions and cl and clarify because everyone's got a different voca vocabulary for expressing an emotional response, and so unless you can crack that code with the people you're talking to, you you're always just kind of guessing. And you, I, I'm sure you've had this experience of like people do all this like executive mind reading. They're working on a on a on a pitch, and it's like, well, yeah, but you know they're not going to like that because when I don't like, well, you don't know what they're like, and so like and like uh, you know what. What, what espionage can you do to find out beforehand? Like, who do you know on that, exe you know, executive support team that you can talk to because you can't talk to the SVP, but you could talk to their their executive assistant or their pro program manager and like get some, you know, a, a big part of influence and persuasion is not just thinking you you figured it out, but actually knowing you figured it out because you talked to a whole, you did all kinds of like espionage basically recon. I always I tell people like listen listening to executives is like you don't just listen in the meeting you should you know executives speak at these big at big you know at the all hands listen really closely because whatever they said there they worked really hard they had a whole team of people working on you want to make sure that when you pitch to them you're reflecting that in some way you know how in the in the Q1 all hands you talked about um, you know adding value to, to every step of the flow I think this is like a value-focused thing we're going to show you now. And, you know, just hearing you say that you heard them, everybody wants to be heard yeah. from the junior to the senior. Mm. And so showing people that you're listening to them is really important part of the, the process. It's really important. So I find that um, I run a small business, but, you know, going out and uh, tendering for work, pitching for work, the more information I can find out about the person I'm going to a room with, especially on a human level too, right? Like... I mean, it's just lucky that I'm interested in skateboarding, but finding something like that that you can have a conversation. So I'm also into a competition barbecue, so I do a competition barbecue. I landed a really big client recently, worked out through a friend that I know the butchery goes. It's just, it's just an instant connection that yeah. you can have that totally changes the whole conversation. Yeah, and, and a lot of that can come from, um, a, if you, especially if you're, if you're sort of like, your recon and espionage is coming from a place of sincerity and really like curiosity because people are interesting there's like there are very few people you could go to the worst like corporate salesperson conference and talk to and still like talk everyone you talk to if you talk to them long enough and ask the right questions you'd be like 
wow, that's so cool. I can't believe you're into that. You Especially know? once you get below the surface. Yeah. Because at those types of events, people will just seem kind of... And often in these podcasts, uh, you find people, especially keynote speakers, you know, they've, they've got their kind of... Uh, yeah. They've got their playbook and, the, and they're ready to rock on that. So yes. it's nice to throw something in and get someone, you know, take, take them out of it. And either they're kind of like, oh, but usually they're like, oh, great, we're actually going to have a proper conversation here. And not, yeah. And it becomes... It, basically, uh, it becomes more interesting for everybody. For you, for the person, for anyone listening to the podcast. Like... Because then you're you're sort of more engaged in like what is what makes us tick as humans you know it's like it's anthropology it's not uh, it's not um, business strategy and we're all humans care about humans you, when you look at the research around storytelling for instance our brains light up yeah. when we hear a real it's really story really cool isn't it yeah it's amazing yeah. and so and, and that the, just got more curious like is it symbiotic some con- a literal connection where the brains will mimic each other yeah mirroring there's mirroring, the mirroring yeah. that we do and the, the identification which is a little different and mm. yeah it's, it's, it's really really interesting stuff and you can put that into play in lots of different ways you don't have to like you don't have to like do a presentation or a pitch that's like once upon a time, you know? Um, it's sometimes it's finding the right anecdote to inject that has nothing to do with the pitch, but that's like, you know, this is kind of weird, but like on my way in, I, you know, I, I almost ran over this dog in the parking lot and it scared me, but it made me realize, you know, like it could be a, just any, so yeah, but it's again, like I feel one thing I've noticed with throughout, and maybe I'm more aware, maybe it's all like, I feel like education in the United States over the last 20 years has changed a lot. And it used to be a little more open, like, you know, you went to college, and you kind of studied some stuff. You might change your major. And nowadays, kids from like third grade are like, I've got to get the right classes. And I've got to, and, and by high school, they're like, I've got to be in all the AP classes. And if I don't get like a, a perfect GPA, I'm, I'm going to end up homeless. Like, there's no way. And so they're so focused on, on jumping through the hoops of academia that they get out of school and everything feels like a test. And when everything feels like a test, you think that there's a right answer and a wrong answer. And so you get really nervous, you over-index on trying to control exactly what's gonna happen in a conversation or in a review or in a pitch. And you don't realize that this is, it's not, this is not a test. This is like a, 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 a sort of stilted conversation with an inherent power dynamic but you want what you want to do is navigate the polarities and navigate the spectrum of pers- of perspectives and the better you could do that to converge on something that people agree on the more successful you are but it's not a test and and that i think getting people to change their mentality about about that is really helpful for having a more productive creative conversation is that something so you're obviously working in a high performing environment yeah. with a lot of pe- people that have literally probably spent the last 10 years of their life since you know since they went into middle school thinking i want to work for the googles of the world right this is a, these, these are high performing people clear focus they spent three hundred thousand dollars on their college degree and now now they've made it but do you almost have to sort of rattle that out of them because i imagine it is quite a different sort of mindset like they weren't a lot of them probably weren't skating or you know playing in bands, you know, when yes. they were sixteen because they were focused on study. Yeah, you, I think you do, and you have to. I mean, I, and I wouldn't say I'm like massively successful, but you know, I when I have when I have the right opportunities, I, I will literally tell people. Like I have a one a thing that I'll tell tell people. The slide just says this is not a test, and then t- I talk about like, and when I do that, you off I'll often get people saying like. Oh man. Okay. 
Yeah, I get it. And usually people have done other things in life. Like, you know, when you're little, you put on shows and you do all kinds of imaginary stuff. And people maybe were in musical theater. And like, there are lots of things people do that are more open-ended and more about, they're more performative or they're more exploratory. And so some, some of it is just getting them to unblock their connection to those parts of themselves because it, if you you're, you get into these corporate, especially the, the big companies, are the, they're like corporate thought ecosystems and you forget, like, no, I'm a whole person. It's kind of back to the, like, be your whole self, like, see the whole person. Like, once you realize that, like, no, actually, like, I really like gardening. So my metaphor for my work is going to be I'm tilling the field and then I'm going to plant some seeds. I'm going to see what grows. I'm going to prune the roses. And I didn't like the da- the daffodils, so I pulled them out. And, like... You know, a lot of um, happiness comes from how, like, I'm pretty big into, like, cognitive behavioral therapy. And, you know, you can change your narrative for what's going on. And it doesn't mean you have to, like, brainwash yourself. But you don't have to just feel like you're living in a deterministic universe and the the yeses and nos are controlled by other people. It's, It's much more nuance and you have more control than you think if you adopt the right mindset so I think it's just having conversations it's it's, again it's like it's really hard to formularize that other than my my I think I would say my general approach is try to create a lot of opportunities for having conversations with people in small to medium-sized groups up to like 50 people because even up to 50 people you can have a conversation you can have back and forth and you can do some stuff, break them up and make them have small conversations, then bring, bring them back together and have a big conversation. Um, and it's really through dialogue that people learn more, I think, more sort of effectively and more they internalize versus you see a lot of one-way communication where people are trying to up-level teams. It's, it turns into this sort of one-way or pedagogical, highly pedagogical and you know, some people respond well to that and some people don't. And the people who don't often feel belittled or, or uh, less competent because it's just not their style of learning. But there's a passivity there as well, right? So it's like yes, we're sitting exactly. here listening to you tell us how to do things. Uh, you touched on an interesting in, in terms of uh, trying to get people out of the cognitive behavioral therapy, getting people out of sort of their... Um, you know traditional ways of thinking travel is a great way of doing this right so taking you out of your out of your comfort zone and seeing that other people see the world differently than you and i think travel is a really great way of doing that i often find that within organizations people with cultural differences different backgrounds coming into you know a largely sort of you know white anglo-saxon uh, uh, culture here in australia feel I don't know, ashamed, or they, they hold that back and don't fully embrace it. And I think it's, so for, for example, at the office, we do team lunches where we all bring stuff and cook things. And it's, it's often the people that have had, you know, different backgrounds that come with the best food. And, that, and that's, that's a really great pathway. Food's a great pathway to start some of those conversations. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it really, um, you know, it's food, especially the food that you would bring to a lunch like that. You're, you're not going to cook something too experimental. You'll probably cook that thing that your, your mom or parents made when you were a kid. And, you know, that's like so close to your heart. And yeah. And, and if people really feel it, it's, it's a very, um, sort of tangible sense of who someone is and where they're, what their background's like. And that it's really fun to learn that about somebody. Um, I think that it's creating those kinds of, those kinds of opportunities for that to happen without it being overly structured or um, or too open-ended because there there are people who are never going to be the one to step up and volunteer to bring their dish 
because they're just they're introverted or they're not so you have to sort of clear the lane for them a little bit yeah. but without putting the spotlight too strongly on <laughs> exactly yeah a bit of a tangent but I know that so when you were working for the um, uh, Cancer Foundation you worked on their website right um, so you've been in and around the web since you know the early early days of it right I'm quite interested in uh, so the web is such a from a design perspective initially it was, you know it was a horrible place and then it became somewhat of an interesting place with a sort of flash and everyone got crazy and was like wow what can we do now it's become really focused on efficiency and you know short attention spans and how can we sell, how can we get someone to down a funnel as fast as we possibly can what what do you see as the scope for for creativity and new you know design systems and and layouts on the web that's a good question i i think that and, and by the web you know for, when i think about the web i i kind of think about it from a you know, a, a, a phone window, not a laptop, but I'm on the laptop all the time. Um, so I think it's, you know, like all, but even if you'd say, well, our sort of baseline for the web is the, the laptop screen, for instance. Um, what you want to do, like digital products are, have gone past this, like, it, you know, they, they started as like brochureware or sort of, Pure, it was purely just like compiling information that people needed in some way, shape, or form. Um, one of my early, I remember when I worked at Ziv Davis, which was like a tech publishing company, the Mac Week magazine and Computer Life. We used to do these CD-ROM cover mounts for the magazine, like a, like multimedia was a big thing. And one thing we produced was a map of the internet, and it was like all the things on the internet. Or no, and then it was the internet atlas. It was a book. It was like this little paperback. Like, here are all the things on the internet with these things called URLs. It's like, ridiculous. So I think everything has just exploded. Um, so what makes websites compelling and effective now is the sense of um, immediacy or, uh, or, or um, what's the word, sort of like, ingrainedness that's not a word like how do they just fold how can the web property that you're developing fold into people's lives mm. seamlessly Co cognitive fluency is something they talk about on the web right yeah. so and it's, but as soon as something and this is why I thought about it why it's interesting so as soon as something sits outside of what is so cognitive fluency is essentially just my brain is used to seeing things like this so a long scroll right that vertically down the page as soon as something changes out of that, all of a sudden the brain's going, okay, I don't understand this anymore. And generally in the way we engage with you know, digital these days is, you know, that's a lost sale or that's a, that's a lost engagement as opposed to that sense of sort of exploration or, or you know, trying something different. Yeah, I think it's, it's a delicate, for people who are working on designing web experiences, new or different is not always better, especially depending, depending on the behaviors you're looking to to sort of engender like if you are if you're doing lead generation or anything where you have these pathways that are that you really you know the pathway that you want to happen you it's I think I think it's just not really worth reinventing the wheel unless you have good tools for measuring incremental changes so that you can sort of like step and repeat and, and little by little get to an, an even better experience. Um, but the, the thing that I think gets more and more important in, the, in a lot of different kinds of experiences on the web is, is context. Yeah. So you, you will accept a bigger change, like 
change in gestural modality or a bigger, um, like more steps in a, in a flow if you know why really clearly. And how you explain context can often be not just with words, it can be visual, it can be, it can use audio. It can, and so um, w- what is the right way to explain the, like you have to build, like quickly build the mental model for what's happening here and then the UI itself becomes the embodiment of that in a way that's, that's like, you know, it's not, it, it's not just that you've reduced the steps. Like, it's that you've increased the sense of, like, oh, these are the right steps. So, yeah. it's, but that takes a different perspective than just thinking about new or different. It's, it comes back to storytelling, though, as well, right? So you, you, have this, you, have this, you have a story that you want to tell. And then I've seen a few things that I've found interesting recently, like a lot of news sites that sort of, giving the the articles in sort of more of a you know late nineties multimedia format where it might go from a text to video to audio but it is yeah. kind of a you know, I remember those city ROMs that they were great. Um, or even you know doing things yeah. like uh, you know text format. So there'll be an interview and that, mm-hmm. then it will go into like a, an iMessage kind of uh, yeah design layout so we can see these two people talking but using some of those visual cues that people are used to yeah. in the way they engage with other you know the apps they use primarily. And using that to tell stories, which is quite interesting. Yeah, I think that's. I think like ways to to give hooks that let people comfortably engage with the content. So it's a, it could be a visual hook that's relating to other parts of their lives that are super ingrained and comfortable. It can be really helpful. Um, I feel like there's this, um, you know, there there's this, the the thing about storytelling is there's there's this. Story. There's a good quote about this, but I can't think of it. But there's a story. There's this, like, as an author, like, if you think about narrative form and the roots of storytelling, you're an author. You write, you write a story, and then there's the reader, and there's the story in between you two. And the story that you write is not the story that they are reading. They're reading. They're creating the story. They're reinterpreting that story. Every single person who reads Ernest Hemingway interprets it a little bit differently and you have to be really honest with yourself about that and that's where you when you when you're honest then you say okay well then how might people interpret this story who are the people and how that we want to talk to or tell this story to and how do they generally interpret stories and what is it that we really think we can control and what can't we control and what do we care about and what do we not care about and um how do we learn what what can we learn about how people are interpreting our story? And so I think people often will focus too much on writing the perfect story when really like you want, that's kind of back to like context. Uh, sometimes the story feels really good because you sat down in a comfortable chair and you had your cup of tea or bourbon or whatever and you open up the book. You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm relaxed and I'm reading or I got on the airplane. I'm going to read this mystery book. That was such a good story. But like you could read it at another time, it wouldn't feel as good, or you could be distracted and you would miss some details. So how do you create the context for them to really enjoy your story? <laughs> you like give some space, you know? It's, it sounds like a lot of the stuff you're talking about really is coming down to listening, right? Listening, listening to people and, and having a deeper understanding of if it's a product or, or a story, whatever it is, who it's going out to and, and what they care and feel and think about. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that that is really at the heart of it. And you know, a lot of times I'm not thinking so much about the the engagement point with a customer. I'm thinking more about the engagement points within an organization. But it's this it's really the the same principles apply, which is 
if you become a better listener and if you focus on, you know, like the listening breath or deep listening or lots of, you know, there are lots of techniques and there are lots of ways you can learn about listening other than like fast company articles. You know, like doing, you doing can, podcasting is a really good way to do it. I think that it, it, it really forces you. I think if I look back on the podcast from three, four years ago, it, there's a lot of me preempting what I'm going to say next and really sort of, you know, kind of worried about my my shit as opposed to listen to what the guest is saying. Yeah, I mean, if you look at po- good podcasts like Mark Marin, I mean, he's a fantastic and he's just a great listener. He and he listens and he's really curious. You know, he'll he'll get a guest on who he doesn't or does or doesn't know. He's also really good at being vulnerable and he'll say, "I was so confused. What is this?" You know, or Terry Gross at PR like She's just, you know, when she's really into a uh, an actor that she's interviewing, she'll let it out, you know? And so, like, being... But but it's all about, like, not caring so much. Of, like, the story is not about... You're not the main character. No, I don't think <laughs> <know>? that's it. <laughs> and, in fact... But that's actually... It's interesting, because I, 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 like, pay attention to, like, mindfulness and schools of thought that are more influenced by, like, Buddhist thought and things, and... The, the idea of listening in a selfless way is incredibly uh, stressful for people because it's, if you're listening and not thinking about what you're going to say to that person or what, how it relates to something you've done so you can then give them advice to solve their problem, but you're just instead just listening, it, you can almost have an existential crisis because your sense of self goes away. And that's a really uncomfortable place for people to be. And so you, if you can increase your comfort level with like, well, it's just, I don't really, I'm not really relevant to this. I'm actually just listening. And, and then when I get myself in that mentality, I might actually have something to say that helps the person. And you also put yourself in a situation where, so there, there is a level of anxiety thinking you're giving up control there, right? But then you're actually allowing connections to whatever it is you might say next to come to you that you didn't think were going to be oh, there. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, that's where, you know, good, like, and your and whatever does come is coming from a place of greater authenticity and, and compassion. I think there's like empathy is one of those words that gets kicked around all the time in design teams. And it's really like empathy in the context of UX is often just a, it's just another methodology for getting um, sort of data points about users. And really what I talk to people about is like, you need to think more about compassion. Like, what is, how are you, like, and maybe, again, like, I'm not so much focused on the user research, but on the team dynamics. But um, you may be good at what you call empathy, uh, which is, you know, you can listen and document to the way people are responding to a product. But compassion is really about trying to identify someone else's source of pain or suffering and then feeling like, you know, maybe there's something I can do to help with that. And that's what builds, you know, again, compassion. And then they feel like they can be more vulnerable with you next time because you showed a sense of compassion. And you just said, that really sounds hard. I'm really sorry that happened. What can I do? You know, nothing. You don't solve it. You don't have to explain it away and tell them what you did last time with that design director. Like, just say, I'm really sorry, man. Like, what? do you want to go, like, get a hot chocolate? You know, like, and that's it. Like, just that, the gesture or something. There's a, there's a lot of, um, there's more symbolism in life than we recognize. And symbolic gestures can be really meaningful. And I talk to leaders about this a lot. You get past a certain level of seniority, especially like you know, in my world, which is these big teams, big company. People at the director level are 
they're not really hands-on with anything. And their role in their org is not to be hands-on. Their role is, is like 30% operational and 60% symbolic. The, whether or not they believe, like they have to, it's really, and they, people get uncomfortable about standing up and saying, it's all going to be okay. We're having a giant reorg, but this is all going to be for the best because they don't want to be insincere. They don't want to, but like, that's your job because they want you to say that. They, they need you to say that. Like you need your parents to say it's all going to be okay. You, everyone knows what's really going on in, in a big like reorg or something, but they need someone to feel like, well, someone really, they really care and they're, they're trying to make it okay. Okay, I can keep going. Like, you don't want to lie, but I think people struggle sometimes. They cross over into this leadership beyond just management, and it's a different, it's a different thing. And so I don't know how I got there, but the symbolism, I think, that it happens at, that, at the sort of leadership level, but also in your day-to-day. And 100%. Making, making sure that you, you have gestures that are, you, you make the gestures that show you care. Mm. You know? The small things really bad yeah. up. Yeah, like even like, you know, showing up on time for meetings. And especially when there's a power dynamic. So mm. people abuse power dynamics in, in ways that they're, it's like an unconscious power dynamic abuse. Like, the manager should show up on time. Yeah. It's not cool when the senior person's always late. That's really uncool. And, and not be on their phone the whole time and taking calls oh, up with the meeting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> but you know, you don't, you get into, that's a culture thing. You see a workplace. Cool. Oh, yeah. So. Mate, it was really good. I think we could chat for a couple yeah, of hours. Yeah. I'd love to come back in and talk more about Thrasher at some stage. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Yeah. Really, thank you so much for the conversation. Yeah. And enjoy your time at Pause Fest. Thank if you, If people Sam. want to find you online, where can they look? They can, I, you know, I'm not good at the, at the social media. Sure. So LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Miles, Miles Orkin. And I, that's the place that I look the most. I think I, I have Twitter. I have a Twitter handle. Yeah. I post, I make a Twitter post once a year. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know about anything else. Like Instagram, I, I have an Instagram feed and I haven't put anything up there for a while. <laughs> Awesome, mate. Looking forward to seeing you talk tomorrow. Yeah, right on, man. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Well, that was fun. Uh, Sam here again. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I probably could have kept chatting to Miles for a, a long time, especially going back to some of his uh, early days in San Francisco. And some of the people he referenced there from a skateboarding perspective are like beyond legendary. So um, pretty cool, pretty cool upbringing really fascinating conversation and like I said it's worth checking out his keynote as well he uh, he has a really fun and engaging way of, of getting the most out of his teams and and creating that space of psychological safety at work which is something that is really really important and more and more businesses are starting to actually understand they need to do rather than just pay lip service to anyway if you enjoyed the podcast as always please like it on your podcast app share it on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you do your, uh, wherever you do your infinity scrolling, and uh, yeah, just for uh, just to ruin the uh, historical perspective on this podcast, we're in lockdown right now here in Adelaide. So shout out to everybody that is listening to this in the next few days and that is at home right now. Big shout out to all the essential workers that are uh, out there making things tick over for us, and anybody that is doing it tough. Our heart goes out to you. Thanks so much for listening. Really appreciate it. And we'll catch you in a couple of weeks. Bye.